1: This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code LESSDUMB at checkout. A better web starts with your website. You Are Not So Smart is also supported by The Great Courses, offering more than 500 engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors and experts who are passionate and knowledgeable on topics like science, history, literature, music, and more. You Are Not So Smart listeners can go to thegreatcourses.com smart to receive 80% off the Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior lecture series, a DVD, CD, and internet audio lecture exploring the big questions in psychology. That's thegreatcourses.com smart.
2: The middle the
1: Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 30.
3: Hey, how's it going? Can you hear me?
1: I can hear you just fine,
3: man. Ah, perfect. How's it going, man?
1: Oh, it's going great. Um, thank you so much for uh, being available for this. That's so cool. Yeah, no problem, dude. I,
3: uh... This
1: is Brian Rincon, known as Mr. Grimms to his fans. And Rincon is a professional athlete. He's sponsored. Thousands of people from around the world come to watch him compete in tournaments and perform in exhibitions. He's beloved. He's great at what he does. And you've probably never heard of the sport he plays. But that's not because it isn't very, very, very popular. Here's some audio from the last world championship in which he competed. Every,
2: every point of frame advantage that Saberwolf has from his normals, and there you go, first strike right here by the manual got himself a print brick right there Mr. by
1: Grimms. Known for his manuals, gets an auto double in there. That's gonna be big. Jayco has the home home stage advantage right now. Oh one of Saberwolf's best moves, the Shadow Eclipse.
2: Oh my goodness, I think Mr. Grimms is trying to go under, but you can see, look at this. That's the
1: game that Mr. Grimms plays, and what is it? It's Killer Instinct. It's a fighting game. It's a video game in which two opponents control two martial artists. It's kind of like high-speed chess, but played in a way that looks like virtual MMA or boxing by proxy through a machine. Anyway, it's a really big deal. Fighting games have gotten way more complicated and much more difficult to master since Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter. Games which, by the way, came out more than 20 years ago. So what are fighting games like today?
3: Oh, man. Fighting games. Uh, in my definition, fighting game is probably uh, one of the closest... I want to say closest to closed... Player versus player interaction—it's it, probably the, the cl- like the, the closest you can get to your opponent f- through everything, uh, in a, in a competitive, fierce kind of way. Um, I, I feel like fighting games it, it it kind of it it literally explores every single bit of the player's mind, and, and and through that projecting that um all all of what they're feeling, all of what they're thinking through one single character, and you can literally make poetry through through just that alone like everybody will uh, that that did you hear that just as into fighting. he said poetry um,
1: and you know what it's true if you watch exactly. two masters people like Brian who before he even started practicing killer instinct which he says he put about a thousand hours of practice into he had six years of experience in fighting games in general before that and when you watch two people like that play it astonishes you to see them react to one another's attacks and deceptions they'. are counters and their counters to counters and their counters to counters to counters. And it's like watching a Kung Fu movie or a professional boxing match. Each person seems to be able to always know when to duck or when to block. It's as if they can see into the future. And according to our guest today, David Epstein, the latest research into how practice affects the brain suggests that's exactly what they are doing. They're seeing into the future. And how do you see into the future? Well, the, the secret is we're always seeing into the future. That's how we interact with the world. Our intuitive systems build off of a sort of cognitive database. That's how David Epstein puts it, of experiences that we've had beforehand. And then when we are in a similar environment, we chunk all that data that's coming at us, millions of bits of information, we chunk it into a small number of meaningful things And those small number of meaningful things then help us to unconsciously, involuntarily, and automatically predict what's going to happen next. And when we watch people who have practiced a whole lot and are playing sports at a very high level, you're seeing people who have spent a lot of time building up a huge cognitive database, much bigger than the ones that we usually carry around every day.
3: The the moment that I felt Pretty Comfortable, uh, uh, comfortable about going to tournaments and uh, practicing. I would have to say at least six and a half to seven hours a day of of just you know, um, of just you know, training, you know, vigorous training within the game itself and and without and shutting myself out from other games, <laughs> which I, I kind of which I don't personally like because um, uh, again, I'm like an I like to play other games, but you know, Killer Instinct was one of those definitely one of those special ones where. You know, if you really wanted to do well in a tournament, you know, sometimes it was necessary, you know, to just kind of buckle down.
1: If you want to watch Mr. Grimm's play, you can get on Twitch. He gets on there just about every night and he plays for his fans. He plays anyone who wants to play against him and he talks to people in his chat and he can do all of that. He can talk and carry on all these conversations and, th- and talk to people even in the room with him and still obliterate opponents almost without even having to, uh, to put any effort into it, it seems. And... When people are defeated by him, they must feel like, oh my God, he saw everything that I was going to do. And why is that? Because they didn't put in seven hours a day practicing like he did for the last six months. Practice makes it possible to see into the future. So here comes some questions. One, is it nature or is it nurture that makes it so that people can become as great as Mr. Grimm's? Would it take another person a lot more practice to reach his level, or maybe someone else, a lot less practice. And what about the 10,000 hour rule that you keep hearing so much about? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney, and I will be your host. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we talk about a different subject in the realm of self-delusion, and then we seek out an expert on that topic to help us understand it. And then we eat a cookie. And today, we're going to talk about practice. And our expert is David Epstein, who wrote a book called The Sports Gene. It's a New York Times bestseller. And it asks several questions about what makes great athletes. Is it something that was already in them when they were born? Or is it something that they picked up through lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of practice? So you're going to get the answers to all of that in the interview. And we're going to talk about the 10,000-hour rule, which is... A bit more complicated than maybe you've heard. One quick note, though. <laughs> you um, I called hi- I called Mr. Grimm's a, prof- a professional athlete, and I want you to know that he is a professional athlete. According to the Los Angeles Times, great gamers like, uh, like Mr. Grimm's, like Brian, they now get special visas whenever they come to the United States from other countries. And the United States labels them as, quote, internationally recognized athletes. The, the Los Angeles Times also said... And this amazed me uh, that games like League of Legends, which is also one of the esports that's played in these tournaments, it uh, it has more players in the United States than baseball. Actually, in fact, one in 20 Americans plays League of Legends right now. So I'll have a link to that at the website so you can read more about all this stuff. It's a multi-million dollar, thousands of people go to it kind of thing that is just, uh, it just doesn't have mainstream attention, even though it's more popular than the things that do have mainstream attention. Very strange. Okay, so I asked you on Facebook, on the You Are Not So Smart Facebook page, which is just that Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. I asked you to tell me some some things you've done, some things that you have practiced very hard to achieve, things that you've devoted hours of practice to, and why did you do that? And received a lot of replies. I'm going to read a couple of them to you right now. Mary Warren Bartlett, she said that she practiced playing the viola from fourth grade through her first year of college. She says, I wanted to play very well because I couldn't stand poor or even mediocre performances. The composer didn't write a piece for it to be played badly or incorrectly. I loved and still love the deep, rich sound of the viola and felt at one with the instrument when I was playing at my best. I also made my closest friends in the orchestra and I am still in touch with some of them. And, Edmund Theodore Rue, he said that he has spent years practicing martial arts. He can now considers it something that's part of his, uh, his human essence, as part of being a human. And he also has uh, deeply studied math and guitar. Kevin McNamara asks, does PlayStation count? Yes, I think it does, Kevin. Def- <laughs> Anything that you practice over and over again so that you become good at it in a way that you can't really explain, it counts. Michael Harrington, he says, programming is something that he has spent hours and hours of practice on. He writes, at first it was only the novelty of it. It was hard to learn, but it felt like crossing the threshold to a new world. Soon I wanted to push it to see what I could make a computer do, and I love the increasing feeling of power and creativity it gave me. Eventually, without even realizing it, I was coding simply for the joy of being in a state of flow, and the hours melted pleasantly away, and that's why I still do it, even though I do it for pay, and that makes it harder to get into the flow." Chelsea Ratcliffe writes, practice makes attic. I get a high from feeling like I'm doing something a little better than last time and also from feeling like I'm inching closer to mastery. The more I rock climb and tango, the more obsessed I become. And this obsession or perhaps this state of flow is the only thing that's been able to overpower my tendency to self-handicap when I think others are watching. Self-handicapping, by the way, if you've never heard of that, um, that's when you know you have something very important to do uh, not too far in the future. And then you do things that will sabotage your ability to do that thing. Well, and then that way you have a plausible explanation for why you failed, if you failed. And if you succeed, you can say you succeed despite great odds. It's a really bizarre human phenomenon. Sajad Mokadam. He says that he's practiced many hours on the violin. Bob Wiseman says he spent many hours on the guitar John Humphrey says he spent many, many hours on the electric base. All of them talk about flow, talk about how practice leaves them with uh, this mastery that gives them a new kind of passion that like levels up their passion. And Kansas Rose, she says, I spend hours playing and doing drills for pool. Uh, That includes taking lessons and watching hours and hours of professional pool players. Mainly my focus is on nine and ten ball and my next step is getting into tournaments. There are a lot more comments over at the Facebook page, but uh, I thank you all very much. This is, it shows that I think all of us have at some point in our lives picked something and spent hours and hours trying to get better at it. And we've gone through the stages of novice to amateur. And then at some point realizing, Oh my God, there's a long way between here and mastery, but, uh, and some of us keep going and that's what we're going to talk about today with our guest. Our guest is David Epstein. David has written a book called The Sports Gene, which is a New York Times bestseller, very popular among athletes, among people who are uh, Serves some sort of function within the athletic world and in pro sports and so on. And also popular just among people who are interested in nature versus nurture. The this, Whether or not genes make us uh, experts in things or give us the power to do really well or it's all about practice. And he also really, really takes apart the 10,000 hour rule and explains it in great detail in a way that will make it make sense to you forever. We're going to talk about that a lot in the interview. And uh, it's a great book even if you're not into sports That's because uh, it's about practice in general is a big part of the book and whether it's like video games like we talked about earlier or anything that you're into that, uh, from something that's competitive or something where you're just trying to, uh, beat your own personal record over and over again, or trying to beat some sort of world record, the book applies to all of that stuff. So let's pick his brain. So David, you say early on in your book, that the only way you can hit a ball at high speed is to be able to see into the future. Could you explain what you mean by that?
2: Right. Well, it it turns out that um, a a major league fastball, for example, is actually moving too fast for human biology really to react to it. So the average reaction time of major league hitters um, is about 200 milliseconds or a fifth of a millisecond. uh, Sorry, a fifth of a second. And that's that's basically the same as teachers, doctors, lawyers. They're, they're nothing special. And that's just the minimum time it takes to see that there's a ball in flight, for that information to cross the synapses to the back of your brain, and for you just to even start your muscles moving. And that's half the total flight time of the pitch, just to start your muscles moving. Mm-hmm. Add that to the fact that, you know, we've all gotten that little league advice keep your eye on the ball, but actually our eyes can't track. Um, an object as its angular position is changing that rapidly as it gets close to your head, so that that advice is nonsense. You could actually close your eyes once the ball were halfway in if it weren't psychologically upsetting. So we really aren't equipped to be able to react to things moving that fast, but what major league hitters learn to do through specific kinds of practice is to unconsciously pick up on body movements of the pitcher, shifts of the pitcher's torso, rotation of the pitcher's shoulder, the, the flicker of the, of the ball, which is the flashing pattern that the seams make when the ball rotates. And as soon as that is out of the pitcher's hand and even before, they use that to make a judgment about where the ball um, is going to go in the future. And, and that's the only way that they're able to do what they do. In fact, if you ever watch Major League hitters, you'll see they're actually starting their swing sequence well before the ball has been released because there's, there's no way for them to react to it fast enough. It's completely built on sort of this learned expertise.
1: Now, what makes that really, really cool, really, really fascinating is, first of all, you know, I think I had thought for many years that, uh, you know, they're doing this sort of um, uh, beautiful mind kind of thing whenever the ball is headed toward them. Like, there's all these computations. It's, yeah. almost, like, it's almost like what the Terminator sees, like all yeah. these uh, <laughs> graphs all, all and the numbers thing. are going all over the place. Um, but it's, you talk about, I mean, it. I think it gives us some insight into how everything in life, uh, works and that, um, you know, you're over time, lots and lots of experience with certain situations builds up this, um, uh, database as you call it of intuition. And then we respond to those things without thinking. And that's what we're actually watching when it comes to great athletes is are people that have put a, spent a lot of time working out their intuition on top of whatever skills they have. Um, would
2: you agree with that? I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, as you alluded to, not, not just great athletes, but things that we all do. I mean, think of, you know, it, it might not be an exact analogy, but, but think about skills that we all automate. Like when you learned how to drive a car and you had to think, oh, hand over hand and look here and look there. And now, you know, assuming nothing unexpected happens, like you can do it while talking on a cell phone or putting on makeup or whatever. Right. You don't have to think about those steps because you're unconsciously picking up on the cues the changing sizes of cars around you to tell how 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 quickly you're approaching them that's actually one of the key visual cues that NASCAR drivers um, use is the, is the changing size of cars in their field of view that they react to really quickly and 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 we sort of learn these systems and patterns that allow us not only to interpret what's happening but but to remember better what's happening and like So everyone listening to this has mastered the English language, right? And if I gave them 20 random English words, they probably wouldn't be able to repeat them back to me. But if I gave them a 20-word sentence, they might be able to repeat them back to me because they've learned a system of grammar and groups, or or chunks, um, Mm -hmm. as I call them in the book, of of phrases and words that have meaning to them. So instead of like looking at a random chessboard, they're looking at something that has meaning, and they're able to interpret it and consequently to remember it as well.
1: And... Could you sort of um, explain why it is then that a softball pitcher can beat a professional baseball hitter? Because um, it, it plays right into what we're talking about here. We're actually seeing a demonstration of it.
2: Yeah, exactly. So that's this is the story in the first chapter of the book is of a woman named Jenny Finch who was um, an elite softball pitcher who sort of in an exhibition struck out some major league, some of the best major league baseball hitters, uh, you know, some of them ever, and Um, you know, they didn't even hit foul balls off her and and she did so well that it just turned into a TV show where she would go around, um, with Fox once a week to a different baseball training camp and strike out their best hitter. And these guys couldn't figure out, you know, invariably they would say like girls hit this stuff (laughs) and and they, they thought they were going to hit her. She pitches from closer than a normal major league mound, Mm -hmm. but because she pitches so much slower about low to mid 60 miles per hour, the transit time of her pitch is actually longer than some of the pitches they're used to facing, and the ball's bigger. So, you know, logically, you'd kind of think they should have a better chance of hitting it. But again, because they don't have special reaction speeds, they need to rely on those those interpretive skills that they've learned. And she has completely different shifts of her body, totally different rotation of the shoulder because she's throwing underhanded. The spin of the ball is completely different. So all those cues that they had learned to pick up on that allow them to do something that's otherwise impossible are gone when they face her, and consequently, the best hitters in baseball could not even hit a foul ball. Off her. I mean, so many guys had gotten embarrassed that by the time she got to Alex Rodriguez, he he refused even to to go and step into the batter's box against her. He finally wised sure.
1: up. The um and you, you know we'll go. I want to go back to chunking in just for a second, but it you know you talk about in the book how you know when it comes to boxing or baseball is they're both too fast, you know, one too fast to hit and one too fast to dodge. And so the skill comes from, um, practice and this cognitive database that you build up that lets you overcome the fact that we live a little bit in the past. You know, we live like a second and a half of the past. And then we also have to wait for our senses to catch up and, uh, you know, everything be processed by the brain. So when you practice anything, it's like you're, uh, you're you're preparing yourself to predict the future and to react as if you will know what happens next. And I've noticed that um, even like uh, competitive video games, like a competitive fighting game or um, uh, something like uh, StarCraft, where there's lots of like uh, of strategic things happening. Like when you watch people play that competitively, it looks like they're actually psychic. That's the most. It's like magical to see. It's like they can predict every single thing the other person. It's like a kung fu movie where oh. they see all, all the hits coming and they go pop 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 pop. So, and like your book really gave me that epiphany like, "Well, that is what's happening. You are tr- becoming a reasonable psychic. Like you have a probabilistic um, chart that's going down inside your mind unconsciously that says there's a 90% chance this is going to wa- this is what's going to happen next if I see these conditions in front of me." Um, totally. So, would you say that expertise is sort of a word that we use to describe that that database?
2: Yeah, for for the most part, yes, I would. And and to go, you know, it's like what you just said reminds me of that scene. I think the movie was, I think it was House of Flying Daggers. Um, Although it could have been, could have been Hero. And one of those, one of those great Chinese films. um, The there's like a scene where two expert martial artists like play out their entire fight in their mind. Oh yeah, and, and then just conclude it kind of, and it's it's amazing. You know, they're just sort of predicting one another's movements. And and you mentioned boxing. I mean, Muhammad Ali. From from the first percept, not from when he decided to throw a jab, but from the first perceptible movement, to the time when he could get his arm to someone's face was forty milliseconds. So it's like a quarter of the minimum human reaction time. So if you weren't already judging where that was going well ahead of time, then you'd be hit by every punch. You know, yeah, and possibly get out of the way.
1: So so it sort of forms a meta game in which both experts are trying to deceive the other person's intuition. So. Um, as if they have, they're trying to do things that will cause the other person's brain to predict that the next thing that's going to happen is going to be this, and then they actually do this, and that's what that just makes it just this uh, this another level of you know two brains versus one another's intuitions. I think that's amazing.
2: Totally. I mean, if if you watch the World Cup at all recently, like so many of the things that the guys who have the best ball handling skills do isn't even touching the ball. They're just like whipping their foot around the ball in various motions to try to to throw off the defender's anticipatory skill. It's not even moving the ball in a direction. It's like (laughs) dancing around the ball to say, like, I'm going this way, I'm going that way, which is, I find to be um, really, really interesting. Or in the NFL now, you know? So eye-tracking studies will show that, like, if I were playing quarterback, I would follow the guy I want to throw to, whereas Peyton Manning would do, like, what master chess players do and look at spaces between players that show kind of how their relationship is going to develop. And so what defenses have taken to is trying to confuse that by like moving guys around a lot before the play starts. And all that is, is trying to confound his ability to read the chessboard early on. Because once the play starts, he has, I mean, I think he has like a second and a half is his average time to snap from snap to release. It's not like you can consciously think back to all the film study you've done in a second and a half.
1: <laughs> right. You, I mean, you talk about how thinking actually oh, you know, obliterates this effect, like that you have to get to the point where you are making executive decisions about suggestions being handed to you from the
2: unconscious, basically, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's, that's where I refer to the work of Sian Bylock, University of Chicago on choking, where, you know, it's sort of, you work really hard to automate a skill, you know, move it to those sort of less, quote unquote, thinking parts of your brain. And then if you start thinking, uh, you basically drag it back into the part of your brain that you know is used when you 're a novice performer that 's not what you want to do so that 's the whole point of taking a time out to ice a guy to make them to make literally to make them think about it so in that case sort of the the folkloric language that coaches used, making someone think about it actually is quite <laughs> quite accurate
1: <laughs> I love this like so much uh that we write about or that we read studies about, you know, things that people have been doing have things that people have figured out through trial and error that um, have a uh, cognitive or neurological underpinning. I love when that happens. And the the fact that uh, trash talking has some sort of neurological uh, effect on, on what we're talking about <laughs> I, is such a beautiful thing.
2: I asked one scientist, um, you know, well, so if this is the case who studies tennis, well, what, what would you recommend then, you know, to, to get someone, out of their zone or whatever. And he said, you know, it's, it's the, the thing to do. So, so baseball players, again, they pick up things like the shoulder rotation is very important for them to pick up. But if you tell them like stare at the shoulder, they get worse at it. Like they right. need to learn it through <laughs> practice. It, like, you can't just explicitly tell to them. But so with tennis players, he said, well, yeah, you know, when you go and shake hands over the net, say like, boy, I really love how you, it was amazing how you angled your racket head on that last, <laughs> you know, like That's try to awesome. make them <laughs> think about something that they're doing without thinking about it.
1: That's so good. I love that. Um, let me uh, go over chunks really quickly before I move into the other thing, and uh, and then what the way it made you made it make sense for me was when you talked about chess players, where you have like novice, intermediate, and expert chess players, and you have them look at a chessboard in a flash, and you get three very different um, reactions to that. Could you sort of um, elaborate
2: on that? Yeah. So this was a famous study done by a, by a chess master actually, where um, he took, starting in the, in the forties, he took chess players of different skill levels and wanted to kind of find out why some were better than others, basically. And he showed them boards, um, with game arrangements and then took those boards away after certain amounts of time and found that the grandmasters could, uh, recreate the entire board after only three seconds of exposure like basically, see it like see in their mind like recreate in their mind no they they could they were given a board and they had to replace the pieces oh wow okay so they were shown a board taken away after 3 seconds then given a blank board and they had to put the pieces on and the, the lower levels couldn't do that and it, it tracked with the level like the grandmaster um you know could do it after 3 seconds like 95% of the time the master like 70% of the time you know the novice player basically never and in that original study so it was sort of assumed that the grandmasters had just better memory, like they just were gifted with better memory, and then you know, about three decades later, that study was repeated. But this time, after that original study was repeated, there was an, a component where the players were given a board that had non-meaningful arrangement, game arrangements. You know, it wasn't like total chaos, but it was arrangements that you would not actually find in a game. Mm-hmm. And with that. The, uh, the researchers were able to render the grandmasters back into novices. So it turned out that the grandmasters could only, you know, w- perform this sort of apparent feat of memory when they were given a board that made sense. So it makes a much stronger argument that it's actually that they had learned the board the way that we learn language. Again, mm-hmm. By, mm-hmm. by learning these groups of pieces and arrangements of pieces, that have great meaning for them, so that it's it's not it's embedded in a narrative. It's not difficult to remember. So they're 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 forming chunks or groups of information that allow them to not be staring at you know x number of chaotic pieces of data and trying to remember them one at a time.
1: That's so great because I know that there's another aspect of it is that you know we I know I thought this until I read your book that great chess masters can see like you know eleven fifteen moves into the future. Or I also thought like that. that. And it's more like, um, i immediately thought of those, uh, those paragraphs that have the, the le- the words are kind of garbled, but there's enough information there to make out what yeah. the sentence is. Yeah. And it's more about having that familiarity with how words usually go together than, you know, cause of this, you can, if you look at a sentence written in another language, it's the same letters, but we're like, it's very difficult. So it's very similar to what you're talking about with the pieces, and that you say that they've chunked them. In other words, they're remembering all the the usual relationships that usually happen on a usual game of chess. And after a long time, you've seen, even though there's millions of ways that a chessboard could unfold, there are only so many ways that it usually unfolds. And that's what they've sort of got a familiarity for. Correct?
2: That, that's right. And it's the same way that you know you've learned sort of usual phrases. Like you, you could probably you make a more accurate guess. Than someone who's not an English speaker of what phrase is coming from me based on the first part of my sentence and things mm. like that. But and and actually just to clarify that point a little bit, the chess the chess players actually do see moves ahead or predict moves ahead, but that's not but that's like not exclusive to grandmasters. So it doesn't that's not what separates them. Because they end up picking better moves
3: mm-hmm. um, okay, from
2: yeah. those ones that they're seeing. And so yeah, no, I think the way that you put it is uh is is absolutely right.
1: Okay. So all this about practice, uh, giving you this in, intuition, that's great. And then I was very excited reading the book. I was like, okay, cool. That's, that's then I just can practice anything I want and I can become an expert. Um, but then you get into genes and to the 10,000 hour rule. And, yeah. um, anyone who's listening to this podcast, I'm sure is very familiar with this 10,000 hours thing. It's really taken hold of, especially American culture. Um, and, of course, it was made famous by Malcolm Gladwell and Outliers. You, um, let's let's just say that before we dig into it, how much of an impact would you say the popularization of that
2: Erickson study has been? Oh my gosh! I mean, I didn't, I wasn't planning on like taking it out when I wrote my book proposal, but it was everywhere in the sports psychology literature. I mean, it could just be the the slice of the world that I'm coming from. But my opinion is that it has, has just, like, overwhelmed sports. You know, it sort of became the status quo, um, not for sort of geneticists, but for sports psychologists and, in many cases, coaches. In many cases, coaches who hadn't necessarily even read the, um, the actual study. Uh, but it, it is at this point. I added. I just added an afterword to the paperback version of the book, talking about hyper-specialization in youth sports, which is something that is been accelerated like crazy because of the 10,000 hour rule idea. And that is completely contradictory to what sports science says we should actually be doing with youth athletes. So, I mean, I, I think it's having, yeah, as big a cultural impact as anything I can remember reading in a book in my lifetime. So what was the original study? The, the original study was done on 30 violinists who uh, were in a world famous music academy in Berlin and what the study found was that it, it split, it had the instructors at the academy split these 30 violinists into three different groups based on ability. The top 10 were the future international soloists, um, the middle 10 were people who could would get a job at, at a symphony, and the bottom 10 were what they called the future teachers, um, because that was their, their likely career path. And it turned out that one of the differences between the groups, in, in retrospective recall at least, was the average number of hours they spent practicing alone over the course of their life. Mm -hmm. And the top group had averaged uh, 10,000 hours retrospectively. Actually, their retrospective recall was inconsistent on multiple tries. But anyway, the the top group had averaged 10,000 hours of practice alone, this kind of effortful practice or deliberate practice that's focused on improving your weaknesses by the age of 20. And so the conclusion drawn from that was that you know, there's no such thing as talent, and that um, it was just these their difference in hours of practice. I mean, there were other differences in the study. They also slept 5.4 hours more a week than mm-hmm. any of the other groups did, but it didn't become the 5.4 hours more a week of sleep rule. <laughs> um, but so that was the conclusion drawn from that study, and I have a lot of things to say about it. And so does Anders Ericsson, Actually, he now he's been so dismayed by the translation of his work um, in the media. He has a he has a letter linked on his faculty webpage at Florida State now titled The Danger of Delegating Education to Journalists. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. No, but is that fair because, um, uh, I mean, you've actually, you've sat down, you've, you've sat down with Malcolm Gladwell. Do you think yeah. it's, it was? do you think it's Gladwell's fault or do you, or is it a misinterpretation? What do you, what do you think is going on there?
2: I think it's a number of things. So, so first of all, I, I don't think that's totally, it's totally fair because I, I think Erickson has to bear some of the responsibility for this. He didn't include a measure of variance in the study, right? So. Mm-hmm. When I asked him about the study, he says, "Well, the the, you know, was it really ten thousand hours?" He said, "Well, most of them did not reach ten thousand hours, but a small number who had way over ten thousand hours skewed the average, right?" <laughs> so right. first of all, by taking an average, you eliminate individual differences just by definition. When you don't include a measure of variance, and then um, they were inconsistent on on multiple accounts, and the variance was significant, but then he he drew unfair conclusions. So y- you. That study started with a people a group of people who were so highly pre-screened they'd already gained admission to a world famous music academy. Right? That's mm-hmm. that's a massive what statisticians would call restriction of range problem, and it's the worst kind because you're restricting based on the dependent variable of your study. Studying skill, but restricting your subjects based on skill. That'd be like that'd be like setting up a study of basketball skill, restricting your subjects to NBA centers, right. noticing they'd all practiced a lot. And saying, well, only practice got them to the NBA, not practice plus being seven feet tall. So you have to be <laughs> right. careful about your conclusions. Now, Gladwell does give, like, sort of a, an aside to talent in the chapter. He says, like, well, yes, talent matters. But, you know, he, he does call it a magic number to expertise, and he does call it a rule. And I think that magic number to expertise phrase really stuck with people. You know, and and he himself, when we've been on the radio together, says, well, it obviously doesn't apply to sports. But I would argue that sports is where it has been the most applied, even though that's that's not really his idea. I think his idea is more a version of what we'd call the threshold hypothesis, meaning that once you have a certain level of talent, then practice is what differentiates people. But I don't think that's entirely clear either. I mean, so if the idea eventually just boils down to the fact that lots of training is really important, I don't really think that that's been controversial for quite a long time.
1: And... Well, yeah. I mean, it's caught on everywhere. I've heard it. I saw it. Um, I watched a documentary about DJs where um, a DJ just mentions the 10,000. He's like, you know, I all I have to do is put in my 10,000 hours. So it's everywhere. I think everyone has somehow, you know, cultural osmosis has
2: brought this into everyone's minds. Yeah. I mean, the, the if, if the idea is just that practice is important, I'm all for that. <laughs> but like, I, I met a coach when I was in Australia recently, a soccer coach who showed me his training plan to take kids from age 8 to 18 in exactly 10,000 hours of practice. Had, hadn't even, didn't even realize he was extrapolating violin research to, right. to what he was doing. But but the problem with it really is that early hyper-specialization, that that's the path to success in most sports. The jury's out for some sports. But for most sports, it's totally contradicted by the emerging body of science. So my, my concern is it's actually pushing us in the wrong direction for a lot of youth athletes, both for their health and... And actually, for athletic development.
1: So you said you mentioned that um, a second ago. I think that a lot of people believe that you um, you take children and you you know you grab them from an early age and you can mold them into um, super athletes. And um, you're saying the evidence doesn't support that. Wh- why is that, and what should we be doing?
2: So the the kind of I guess Tiger Woods would be like the apotheosis of the ten thousand hours, right? Who's just he's demonstrating his swing for Bob Hope at age two. And people have really grappled onto that story. But first of all, golf is, it, I, I to be fair, I have to say it's sort of unclear if hyper-specialization is the way to go in golf. It, it Maybe it may not be. There's not enough research to say. But for the vast majority of other sports, the path, eventual elite athletes are actually practicing less in their final, in their future sport as children than are athletes who plateau at sub-elite. What they're doing in that time is... Through at least age 12, they sample a range of sports. So uh, up through age 12 seems to be this critical period. By the way, that's, that's the cutoff for when you can change your native language. After age 12, you don't really change your native language. It also seems to be a period by which you have to have been exposed to chess or your, your chance of ever becoming a grandmaster drops like 50-fold. And it also looks like it's this critical period for sampling a variety of sports where you, you learn a variety of physical skills and also get a chance to find out what sports fit your physiology and your psychology. So actually, the typical, the typical pattern of an elite athlete is probably what most people would consider an exception. It's like a Steve Nash, the two-time NBA MVP, hmm. who played a variety of sports as a kid, didn't even own a basketball until he was 13. Goes on to become one of the most skilled basketball players of all time, and not like a big guy. So it's hard to say, you know, I mean, he's probably 5'11", so you can't really say, you know he i mean Hakim Olajowan didn't didn't play basketball until he was 17 went on to become the most skilled center of all time but you could say well you know he's 6 foot 10 so it's not like he's a normal guy but this the typical pattern is actually this early sampling period they have the kids have way lower it, it doesn't mean spending less time in sports it means less time specializing in one sport the kids have way less injuries they report more enjoyment but they also seem to have better skill development we're totally moving away from that which is a shame
1: so Okay, let's – I want to put the 10,000-hour thing uh, – I want to, you know, totally make sure that people listening have an, a new education, a new understanding of it. You you talked the, – the story about Home versus Thomas just crushed me, by the way. The the, uh, the idea <laughs> yeah. that this guy spent so like, – like 15, 17 years learning how to do the high jump. Was that yeah. it? 20, and, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. And becoming – so much that he, like, made his Achilles tendon like, you know, a piston. It's amazing. And then yeah. – this guy just is like, mm, I'm going to give this a shot. And this does it like first try is doing like, you know, uh, world record jumps. And then after just a six months of training is actually coming close to beating the world record. And so you, you use that as a, as a way to illustrate that you know, like obviously genes matter, obviously the environment in which those genes get a chance to, uh, be expressed matters. And, you know, if a person who's seven feet tall is going to be a better basketball player than a person who's four feet tall. That's just, and that, and and genes determine those things. We know that. And despite that, you know, this 10,000 hour rule comes around. And I think, uh, you, you basically boil it down to, if everybody was genetically equal and we all grew up in the same circumstances, then the 10,000 hour rule would be absolute, but it's, but we don't. And so it's not, would you say that is the biggest thing people miss about that research?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, that and also, so you're right. Like, if we all if we were all identical twins, only practice would separate us. And if we all had an identical environment, only genes would separate us. But in truth, it's always a sliding scale. So, I, I think, yeah, I think that's one of the big misconceptions. I think one of the other big misconceptions is that because of the definition of practice that Erickson uses, is that people take it to mean, or at least coaches, that in my experience, to mean that learning should be more explicit, so that we should be telling. Like it has to be more structured. And again, that's the opposite of what the sports science is saying. It's saying that this sampling period through age twelve gives gives kids a chance to do, you know, what some scientists call learn like a baby. Learn implicitly. Learn without explicit instruction. And that's actually turns out to be a great way to learn certain skills and makes those skills more resistant to pressure induced choking when they're learned implicitly. Mm-hmm. Even even surgery is now being taught with implicit teaching in some ways. And and one of the There's a researcher named Jean Cote at Queen's University in Canada who looks at data on – he looks at odds ratios. for What what are the odds of someone making it to the pros in a certain sport based on the size of the hometown they grew up in? And as the 10,000 hours rule has pushed this sort of professionalization of youth sports because you need this highly coached early training, the towns that can – so larger towns where you get the coaches with the most technical expertise and the best facilities – now, produce no pro athletes, basically. Hmm. So, the, if you look at every single sport, he's done this for like 13 different sports, and towns of 50,000 to 99,000 in the US are vastly overrepresented from 10 to 30 times higher odds of making the pros, depending on what sport you're looking at. And these are towns, he's starting to profile some of them, where the coaches don't have much technical expertise, the facilities are no good, but the coach is like a guy who has a key to the gym. And he has continuity with the kids, so he knows them and he can sort of help their personal development. And he facilitates implicit learning, which is which is why. So it's funny that this well-intentioned move toward explicit training seems to have now made sure that all the athletes come from these smaller towns where they aren't hyper structured and they're able to sport sample early on.
1: Yeah. I'm, uh, I have a famous football player from uh, my hometown, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, so
2: um, I have but that town is about 70,000 uh, people. So um, I, I could I pull up the hold on. He, and he's in football. Yeah. Hold on. Let me let me pull up this. Uh, sl- I can pull up the birthplace slides really quick. Let's see the odds ratio here. I'll go through. We'll go through football. Um, so football it, it, from a town of. So of course, an odds ratio of one means that your chance of making it to the pros is as likely as normal. Um, okay. And lower means your chances are less, and higher is that. So in in. Football in the United States, your chance of making the NFL, if you come from a city greater than 5 million people, your odds ratio is 0. 0.01. <laughs> wow. If you come from a town of 50,000 to 99,000, it's 10.8 times normal. And, wow. and And that's not even high. I mean, for women's golf, it's 27 times normal from that town size. Um, I think, I can't remember baseball, but it was high. Let's see. Basketball. So we think of basketball, kids coming from big inner city. If you're from a town of greater than 5 million, your odds ratio of making the NBA 0.37, 0.37. Town of 2.5 million to 5 million, 0.55. 1 million to 2.5 million, 0.33. Town of 50,000 to 99,000, 10.9 times normal. <laughs> that is amazing. Baseball is 20.8 times normal from that size town. Wow.
1: I will mention this if I get a chance to speak to um, to Brett Favre any in the future. Um, <laughs> I will say, that, do you know what? Oh, right,
2: I didn't even. Oh yeah, that's funny. I didn't even put that one together.
1: Uh, yeah, he lives not very far from my parents, and he. Um, yeah, that's. Uh, I will. I will actually mention that, and we'll see what he's what he has to say. I'll get back to okay. you. <laughs> Great. Um, okay, so well, before we go, uh, I'm going to ask you to give everybody some advice. So. You know, a big part of, um, this whole idea of practice, you talk about how not only do you need to, you know, you know, it's all, everything's a mixture of genes and environment and, um, you know, um, and it's practice and that's before you start the practice, a lot of things need to be in your favor. And then actually during your training, um, in all sports, all sorts of other factors come into play that make that training more or less effective. You could, it could be your visual acuity, uh, your depth perception, um, And even the strange, like, extra level of just your willpower to do the training, even if you have visual acuity and depth perception, you also have to have this willpower and endurance, all this other stuff. Um, So it seems to me that this big takeaway from the book is that since to be great at something, you need to – and this doesn't have to be sports. It could be anything. um, You have to practice a lot. Mm -hmm. And what you get out of that practice is going to be determined uh, in large part by your genes and how those genes have been modeled uh, and molded. Um, So – (laughs) <laughs> let me ask you this. Do you have any advice? Uh, it seems to me like you you should figure out what it is that you can best pursue and um, that you might be, uh, then you can figure out what you should be working on every day. So do you have any advice on figuring out what it is that you're good at?
2: Yeah, I, I, I do. And, and because, um, so I would have all sorts of like technical physiological advice if it were asking about a specific sport but, but since we're talking in generalities, like for anybody doing anything here, then let me give sort of generalities about it, which is to take, uh, you know, I, I love this quote that, that I use in the book by J.M. Tanner, who was a world-class hurdler and was the world's expert in body growth and development. And he says something like, I won't get it exactly, but um, every one of us has a completely unique genome. Therefore, for optimal development, everyone should ideally have a completely unique environment, Right. And, and part of what I don't like about how some people have interpreted the 10,000 hours rule is this idea that the same path of development would work for every person. And that's exactly contradicted by what exercise genetics is showing. So just like medical genetics showed that because you have a different gene involved in acetaminophen metabolism from mine, you might need three Tylenol while I only need one. Or maybe Tylenol doesn't work for you at all. The same thing is throwing showing up for the medicine of training. No two people respond to any particular training the same way. And we see that in lots of cookie-cutter exercise programs where people get widely varying results. So I think the most important thing is to go in to whatever you're doing with a sense that you are a scientific experiment of N equals 1 with a mind toward trial and error. And if you're not getting um, the same results as your training partner is to try something else. And then to go through that process that I described for... um, you know, soccer players from the Netherlands who go on to the pros exhibit what's called self-regulatory behavior and self-assessing behavior. They, they do something, they reflect, then they stop and think about what they need to get better at. They, they think of something that they can try to get better at that, and then they assess it, and they continually assess and assess and assess. So they're always tweaking what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons why the athlete's exhibiting that behavior, you know, of course, they also have to have a certain running speed, they also found, but they need that behavior is because they start homing in on that ideal environment for their unique genome. And so I think that can apply across almost anything you're doing instead of that cookie cutter approach is viewing, viewing your own training as this unparalleled, um, uh, sort of inquiry into who you are, um, as, as a biological machine.
1: That's fantastic. And, and let me ask you one really weird question. Okay. This is kind of, this is just, this is just philosophical. Okay. Just your opinion. Um, would you recommend that we pursue those things for which we have a natural aptitude over things we wished we were good at?
2: Uh, if, if by wished we were good at means that it's something that you love, then my first suggestion is, is to pursue something you love. Because, I mean, I see, I see so many athletes. I mean, I, I know I keep in touch with a lot of retired NFL players. Um, and, and, you know, in some cases, they, like, aren't uh, active anymore. You know, in some cases, they were these big, huge guys. Somebody said, oh, you have to play football. And I'm not sure they ever really loved football. I think they liked the camaraderie and they liked being good at it. Um, you know, but there's, there's just a study out uh, by a guy from USC showing that in the past, college Division One athletes maintained higher physical activity levels through life than, than the typical person. And that has now actually disappeared. Now... Division one athletes, they regress right to normal sort of not very good average American activity levels. And I think part of that is because we're so focused on um, you know, structured training and, and what we think will maximize somebody's ability that we're getting people in sports they don't necessarily love or we're getting them in a sort of a environment that's so hyper-structured that they don't even know how to be physically active in a good way once they're done with that competition time. And so I think if we're talking about skills for life, um, then you have to factor in love to it. Now, I, I go through some examples in the book where, uh, you know, Australia and the UK, where they did so called talent transfer, where they they took someone, you know, or, or one story Alberto Juan Terrena, one of the greatest track athletes of all time, the last and maybe the only, or maybe one of two men to ever win both the 400 and the 800 meters at the Olympics, a uh, Cuban man, mm-hmm. was. Training to be a basketball player and and was just in love and obsessed with basketball and then a Cuban sports official came to him and said how about track because he would always like be able to keep up with the track runners when they did drills, and he said no no you know basketball is my life I, I can't do anything else and they said well actually we've already decided for you you're going to do track, and that worked out well and he's been involved in track and field the whole rest of his life so maybe you know that level of success, <laughs> really sort of spurs you on but I I, I really don't I really think, that. People have to, at the very least, people have to be allowed to make that decision for themselves, not not pushed towards it by other people, only because they're good. um, If it's if it's not the way they want to go, I think everyone should have the right to do something that might not be the ideal fit for them. In all the physiological tests, sorry, I'm going on on, but in all the physiological testing that I did during my reporting of the book, I found that the um, ideal, I was most physiologically similar to elite level short track speed skaters. Um, and, and I was a division one 800 meter runner, you know, would I have switched to short track speed skating? I mean, I kind of think that's a cool sport anyway, but, but I had like a life changing experience because of my teammates and, and, you know, some of the things I was able to do in track. So I'm not sure that you necessarily have to be in your best fit all the time.
1: Oh man, there's so much to think about. Um, your book is really great and, uh, it, You know, if you're, even if you're not a person who's into sports, I highly recommend it because it really, it's really about nature versus nurture through the lens of looking at people who have pushed themselves to great physical limits. And um, so those are the greatest people to look at when it comes to nature versus nurture. And um, you did a great job of illustrating all of that. Um, So I'm just saying I really like the book.
2: Um, Well, I appreciate that. I'm a fan of your work. I hope we keep in touch.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So if people out there want to, find you on the internet, Mm -hmm. uh, and keep up with you,
2: how do they do that? Um, they can, if they want to contact me, I have a website that has a forwarding address that's David at the sportsgene.com And I, I sometimes get a little overwhelmed, um, so I can be a little slow, but I do try to respond to things. Um, and I'm on Twitter at, at David Epstein. Um, and if somebody, uh, you know, tweets at me enough that I make sure to see it, I, I pretty much, I usually respond. Okay. And what are you working on next? What's coming up? Um, I'm, uh, I'm actually working on uh, – so I left Sports Illustrated um, and sometime after my book. I joined a place called ProPublica that houses sort of a group of investigative reporters. And I'm working on an investigative piece that I guess I'm not really supposed to say anything about right now. But, okay. Okay. Um, but, but I'm, I'm at the point where I'm, I'm far enough removed from my book now almost a year that I'm starting to think about potential – um, other book projects, you know, and I'm, and I'm interested in questions about, you know, having spent a lot of time on the genetics, I'm interested in questions about, well, genetics are what they are. How can we get the most out of people and out of teams? You know, once we, we basically studying activities to find out what things, figuring out what matters to performance, but more importantly, which of those factors are actually changeable? That's a question mm. that I'm always really interested in.
1: Well, uh, I look forward to that and I really thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsors. Squarespace. It's a website that makes websites. It's a platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own version of whatever it is out there that you think should exist or should be better than what you've seen. You can make a website that just has pictures of cats jumping in the air as if they're riding invisible bicycles. Or you can make a portfolio showing all of your video and audio and and photographic work. Or you could show off all the dolls that you've been creating, made it from old garbage and things that wash up from the ocean. Or you can even make an online store where you can sell things and it's all right there. All the tools are available immediately as soon as you go to Squarespace. It's fast, it's easy, it's drag and drop, and for a free trial, all you have to do is put in the offer code less dumb. you'll get 10% off, and the free trial at checkout. Also, even if you have no knowledge about how to make websites, they have a lot of stuff right there, templates that you can use right out of the box, and if you have any problems, or if you're one of those people who can make websites from scratch, they have 24-7 support to help you get to your goals. Any time of the day or night, any day of the week, you can call and talk to a real live human being who will help you get what you want. So go to squarespace.com, put in the offer code less dumb, get 10% off, get a free trial, and remember, a better web starts with your website. You Are Not So Smart is also sponsored by The Great Courses, offering more than 500 engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors and experts who are passionate and knowledgeable on their topics. And listen, I'm talking about people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, okay? This is a, you get a college course with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And when you buy things like this, each course comes with a DVD set, a CD set, access to audio streaming through a computer or through your app, and a book to go with the course. It's really cool. And you, it all comes in a box. I have the box right here in front of me. And inside the box, it has all these little quotes from other lectures like wristwatches, trench coats, and daylight savings time all came out of World War One. That comes from World War One, the Great War. And this one says, pockets of pollen from seven different plants led a paleontologist in Shanidar to conclude that Neanderthals 45,000 years ago were performing the earliest known Ritual burials. That comes from exploring the roots of religion. Now, I asked them, what makes this better than like a YouTube video? What makes this better than some other website that I could go to? They said it because they vet everything. They have fact checkers who go through everything that the person says and they make sure that it's up to date to the latest understanding in the scientific field that this person's explaining. That is cool. And here's the coolest part of the whole thing though they said, pick any of these lectures. Pick something you think that your listeners would like, and we will give them eighty percent off. And so, all you have to do now is go to thegreatcourses.com/smart, and you will get eighty percent off the course that I picked, which is Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior, taught by Mark Leary. He's a really great psychologist, and I watched this. It is really good, and he talks about all sorts of things that you probably would like to know about self-control. Why do we forget? Why do people's personalities uh, differ from one another? Where do they come from? How did human nature itself even evolve? What makes men and women different? If anything, why are prejudice and conflict so common? Dreaming, the whole thing, all the great big questions that psychology has answered in some way. He talks about that in this very long and cool course. So if you're one of those people who loves to learn for the rest of your life, after college, after high school, it's a lifelong thing and you love doing that then you should take advantage of this uh, short, limited time offer that they're giving listeners of the podcast. Don't wait to get the 80% off deal. You go right now to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And now we return to our program.
0: Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, uh, Who cares about other things? C is for cookie. That's good enough for
1: me. In each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader you can send your recipes to David at you are not so smart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the, you are not so smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at you are not so smart.com as well as the, you are not so smart Pinterest page. Oh boy. This episode's cookie is called a macaroon kiss and it comes from Chris K. Leslie and, uh, Chris K. just says in the email, David, I hope you like this recipe as much as I like your books and podcasts. Thank you so much. Oh boy. I don't know if you can like anything I've done more than this incredible, fantastic, beautiful thing that I'm holding in my hand. Listen to me, people. It's light. It's so light it feels like if I let go of it, it might it might float away like a dandelion seed. And it's, uh, it's this beautiful coconut crumbly, uh, mass of white flakes with a chocolate kiss mushed down into the center. And on the bottom it's brown and golden and, and you know, toasted because the, uh, all the coconut flakes have been toasted around the edges and on the back on the bottom. This is like something you would see in a real candy store. You know how, like if you're like me, if you were a kid like me, you thought that one day you would get to visit a real candy store that you see in movies, but then you get older and you realize that the the candy behind glass and the, the old guy with the mustache and uh, he's got, he's making taffy in the back while laughing. Oh, oh, children, what do you want from my wares? That doesn't exist except, you know, in bigger cities. Uh, and even then, it's not quite like what you imagine. But what you get, what you had when I was a kid was the, the candy store in the mall that only sells uh, jelly bellies and gum. And instead of a wise old man, it's just the somebody who's a manager of both the candy store and Hot Topic. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I had. So this is a confection that seems to come from one of those old-fashioned candy stores from the from the 50s or whatever, whatever they were. I don't even know if they ever really existed. I know that when I was in uh, Sydney, Australia, my wife and I, Amanda, she, uh, we got to go to a real candy store like the ones from my dream. So I have realized my dream, and this feels like the kind of candy that would be in a store like that. Except my wife made this. Amanda made this from the recipe sent in by Chris K. Leslie, and man, this thing, okay, it's got uh, flour and baking powder, salt, uh, cream cheese, butter, granulated sugar, egg yolks, vanilla extract, juice from a fresh orange, coconut flakes, and a bag of uh, chocolate kisses, and um, not only did uh, I get this great recipe, but also he sent a, a wonderful piece of art that said, eat all the cookies, oh my god, okay, so here we go, I'm diving in. Born to be kings. I'm the prince of the universe. Mm. This cookie is the is the confectionery equivalent of bell-bottom pantsuits with Italian leather man boots. This is incredible. Here we go. Mm. So much sadness in the world, and this this just tilts your perspective back over the other way and says, "I know, I know." Oh boy, this cookie, it's forged from the same fires that created Freddie Mercury, and I think that a piece, like a spark from that fire, flew through the ether and landed in Elvis's bed one night, like in the sheets, and he was like, oh, what's going on? here?" He pushed it all off with his feet, and then a vision just formed right there in his mind. He could see all of the jumpsuits that he would wear all the way into his death. Eat all the sequins, even the topaz one with all of the uh, Native American art. He saw it all right there. This cookie comes from those same fires of creation. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, Chris K. Leslie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. These macaroon kisses are guaranteed to send you on a vision quest. I guarantee it. And they're going to help us talk about uh, our news today. Oh, man, this is such crazy research. This comes to us from the Journal of of consumer research. And the title of the study is if it's useful and you know it, do you eat preschoolers refrain from instrumental food? And I'm, I'm actually reading to you um, the breakdown of that study from a press release from the university of Chicago. The title of the press release is trying to get kids to eat healthier. Don't tell them veggies are good for them. And you can Google that, or I will have a link to it at the website. So the idea is this, these researchers, they showed children a picture book and in the picture book, you have this little girl, and she's sometimes eating carrots, sometimes eating crackers, and sometimes, after eating that, the picture book tells the reader how good that food is for the body. Sometimes they're told that it helps the girl get strong. Sometimes they're told it helps the girl learn how to count. Sort of, you know, this is sort of to um, this. Is the idea of this is that this is similar to telling kids, "Drink your milk, that'll make you stronger," or uh, you know, "Eat eat that uh, eat the fish, and that'll be uh, fish is good food for the brain." that sort of stuff. That's what they say in, in, the, in the press release. So what did they find? If you tell a kid that food is good for you, will that make a kid eat that food more often? And the answer is, according to this research, according to this single study, no. In fact, the children who uh, were given the opportunity to eat the food afterward, right? And the children who uh, had heard that the food was good for them were less likely to eat it than the children who were told nothing at all. And so, of course, there's plenty more research to be done, but the authors of the uh, study, the scientists behind all this, they say that there's a message here for people who both market and brand food. And there's a message here for parents who try to encourage people to eat. There's a message here for people who run, um, you know, school cafeterias, that sort of thing. And the idea is that um, if you want people to eat things more often, you have to focus on what's really great about the experience of eating the food. How delicious it is! How fun it is to eat it—that sort of thing. But if you try to give them some sort of high-minded idea, like this is going to build big muscles or whatever, apparently, according to this research, it just encourages children to uh, to not want to eat the food. And they speculate the reason is because somehow uh, the children are connecting the idea of it being healthy or being good for them to the concept that it probably is going to taste bad. So <laughs> there you go. If you want, if you want children to eat food. Uh, that you suspect that they may try to uh, avoid, what you need to do is convince them that it is fun, it is delicious, and uh, it's going to be a very pleasant and cool and interesting experience to have that food. And um, if you want to go a step further, you will show other people eating that food and enjoying it. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one. Head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, or Swell to listen to all the previous episodes of the podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com, and you can find out more about both of my books. You can send your cookie recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com, and if I bake your cookie, we will send you a signed copy of the book. And the opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And all of the uh, music beds, those are by Drew Garraway. Follow the podcast on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. And follow everything on Facebook at Slash you are not so smart.
0: And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com Y-A-N-S-S.